thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really great and important and relevant topic to um, with everything that's going on in the world. Um, uh, but I'm Rachel, I'm a school psychologist. I'm working in the state of Maryland. If anybody, um, as we're kind of getting into the groove, if anybody wants to share how things are going at your schools, feel free to put that in the chat box. Rebecca's gonna be telling you how to participate. Um, I know that Rebecca and Eric, for example, are still seeing children in person, and I myself um, am continue to be virtual. So I'd love to hear about you know what states everybody is in, and if you're seeing students in person, if you're not, I know that things are surging right now. So just a little bit curious, um, but let us know. But I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca. She's gonna tell you how you can participate tonight. Rebecca? Hello, everybody. I hope that everybody, um, all our school psychologist friends out there had a really great National School Psychology Week last week. Um, in our previous episode, we talked about kind of uh, our field and, and working through the pandemic. And so we really would love to hear from you all about how you're doing and what your stress levels are like as we're get, going through this conversation and um, how you are able to take care of yourself and also support your students and communities. So you can participate if you are watching us live by signing into your YouTube account and just posting right there in the chat box. If you do post in the chat box, sometimes we like to share those uh, messages across our YouTube video, uh, which is fun. So if you'd like to um, share a message or a question or a comment more anonymously, please use either of our Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psyched podcast page, and you can comment in messages or write along any of the posts on the page. You can also comment on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast, and I'll be looking for notifications. If you're listening to us later on and not live, you can also comment. Feel free to share your thoughts and ideas over time because we really enjoy collaborating with you on all of our discussions. And now I'm going to pass it off to Eric. Hello everyone, my name is Eric and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And we are excited to have Karen Gross with us this evening. Um, she's got quite a story. Um, as I was reading through her website and reading some of the things she's done, she has served as a, a college president uh, professor, uh, a lawyer, um, law professor. So uh, lots of experience. Um, she is an author and educator, uh, former college president of Southern Vermont College from 2006 to 2014. From 2011 to 2013, she served as senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Education. And prior to that was a law professor for uh, 22 years. She's written a number of books for both adults and children and is primarily focusing on trauma, supporting children and how educators can um, address trauma. She also serves uh, in the Rutgers uh, is a School of Social Work uh, for their trauma education program. And uh, her latest book is called Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door, Strategies and Solutions for Educators from Pre-K pre uh, Through College. So welcome, Karen. We're excited to have you here and excited to speak with you. Nice to be with all of you. Nice to be with your listeners as well. Wonderful. Well, I'm wondering, uh, as we start off, um, trauma seems to be a popular term, but there seem to be a lot of different directions and a lot of ways that maybe um, people are diving in. Uh, what might be some good strategies or at least good ways that educators can get started understanding trauma and understanding how we can support students? 
So let me start by saying that the word trauma is troubling to many people. Um, the word scares people, it shames people. Um, so I, I think the first thing to do is acknowledge its existence um, and to understand what it means. And it means different things for different people in different disciplines. Um, but for me, um, it's something that is very different from person to person, what traumatizes them. And what's important is they show trauma symptomology, symptoms of trauma. And it's those that we have to deal with because if you're not ready, willing, and able to learn, then you can't learn. And trauma impacts both your learning and your psychosocial development. So what I try to do is deal with trauma symptomology and help teachers and school psychologists think about what trauma does to you and then ways to help you overcome it. So if we actually go down on the slides a little bit, um, let's just start with this and then we'll keep going. So what I say to people is, first you have to name what's going on before you can tame it. And then after you tame it, you can frame it as in making it important enough and a focus of what we do, like a frame for a picture. Um, so it starts by naming, then taming, and then framing. And by the way, that's also true for feelings. If you can name them, then you can tame them, and then you can frame them. I like that. I think that's a good way to um, organize and, under and begin to understand it, that. Um, Tell us that we're on the S slide. I love the the five S's. Tell us about what this means. Sure. Can I show you something first before then? So what I say to people um, is if you, you said to me, how do you know if something's happening? How do you know if a student is struggling? How do you know? Okay. So picture my fist as your brain and picture that my thumb represents the limbic system, the feeling system and the Parts over the top here are your cognition. And this down here at your wrist is your primitive brain. That's where your autonomic nervous system stems from. So what I say to people is students who are traumatized literally flip out. They lose their cognition and they lose their limbic system. And so the five S's talk about what trauma takes away and our job is to put the limbic system back and cognition back so you can get ready, willing, and able to learn and develop psychosocially. So often when kids are dysregulated or disassociated or overregulated, it's worth saying, look, here's what happened to your brain. And then let's do this so we can get back. I like that. We we had uh, Dan Siegel on a while ago and he, he also said, you know, sometimes kids, flip their lid if the, if the top of their brain is their lid. And I, I, I like that metaphor. Also, there's so much built into the name it and tame it before you can frame it. And I think as school psychologists, we know that sometimes just naming it is a really um, you know difficult step, especially for younger children and, and helping them develop their emotional vocabulary and find the words to describe how they're feeling is, um, is a really uh, connected and grounding step that can take a little bit of time. Yes, absolutely. This is not, it's like Rome. It wasn't built in a day. Um, 
So if we turn to the five S's, shall we turn to those? So they're what, the S's represent what trauma takes away. And I'll go through each of them quickly, but what's important is the goal is to restore them. Because if trauma takes them away, what we need are strategies to put them back into place so that the tower represented there isn't tipping over. So trauma takes away structure. That's why a lot of kids feel dysregulated. It, it takes out the certainty of what's going on. Then it takes out stability. And what we rely on often, or what children often rely on, is the stability of, say, the school environment, or the stability of their family environment, or the stability in the outside world, all of which now are um, up in the air and unavailable in one fashion or another. Um, then safety gets taken away. And it isn't just physical safety, it's also psychological safety, a safe place to be. And when you've been traumatized, it feels like nothing is safe. And now with the pandemic and many schools closed or learning happening with masks and social distancing, it doesn't feel comfortable and safe. And then subtlety is a word that I use for personalization, namely that Trauma takes away the recognition of you as an individual and it lumps you into a group. And one of the things that many people need in education is to be noticed for who they are so that people know what they can accomplish and know their capacities. And so belief in self gets eroded by trauma. And lastly, Trauma takes away the someones who are not in your family, who genuinely believe in you and with whom you interact and engage on a regular basis. So the reciprocity that forms part of our whole psychological structure gets taken away by trauma. So whether it's a teacher or a coach or a religious figure or whomever it is that provides children with support in addition to their family, that goes when there's trauma. And so you need to restore those five S's. Now, would you say that in, in our current situation, um, because schooling is so different, whether you're in-person, hybrid or remote, that all students, all children have experienced like some, a hit to, each of these five S's in some way, but that not all children, all children will experience the stress and uncertainty, but not all children will feel um, traumatized or be traumatized by the pandemic situation? So I, I think it's important to realize that before the pandemic, many children were traumatized and th there are different kinds of trauma. There's trauma that comes from family dysfunction that's traditionally measured by well, there are 36 tests, but ACE scores or other similar devices. But there's also trauma from community violence and natural disasters and school shootings and floods and things like that. So I, when you enter the world now and ask, are all children traumatized? The answer is it, it depends 
on the child. And a, an event can be, or a situation can be traumatizing for some people and not traumatizing for other, depending on their life experience before that. And so we used to define things in terms of big T, big T trauma and little t trauma. I think the better way is to think about it as big E events and then little E events. So big E events are, we have some of those, sadly, like the pandemic has really impacted the lives of children um, and their schooling. Now, that may not be traumatic for some. For example, children who've been homeschooled might not find that traumatic, whereas for other children, home is not a good place to be and they would rather be in school and they get lots of comfort there. So the answer to your question is we're living in a difficult time, but not everyone is experiencing it the same way. I think that's a great point. We had an interesting, uh, I think a thoughtful comment um, from one of our audience uh, members. And uh, Rachel, I don't, yeah, there we go. Um, I thought this was very insightful. And, um, you know, when you've gone through trauma, you feel like so much has been stolen, but can't find a way to begin to explain the magnitude. And I'm sure we have so many students in that situation. I like how um, you talk about, you know, trauma taking, like, you know, trauma stealing these things, trauma, and then you want, you know, to get them them back. I, I feel like that that speaks to me a little bit um, to make it a little bit not so much concrete, but like I, I can picture so, that. that makes, so for me, that one of the to ways me. to think about it is the the part of what makes us feel so out of control and having such a difficult time is that the locus of control is an externality. Things are happening to us. And if we can move the locus of control from an externality to an internality, so that we feel more in control in an out of control world, then we can start to navigate better. And what that means, I think, for educators and school psychologists is that you have to assume that when students show up online, or in person, that their mere presence doesn't mean they're ready, willing, and able to learn and engage. It means they're present, that's a good start, but it's not enough. And so what you need is a set of strategies, really a toolbox of skills to rebuild the S's that were taken away by trauma, which differs from child to child. Um, but then what you need is these D words that help you build back where you can go. Now, one more thing, you never get back. Once you've been traumatized, trauma doesn't go away. You can ameliorate it in that sense. It's really powerful because our brain is plastic, not as in plastic, like plastic containers, but as in it has plasticity, it can change. Um, but trauma doesn't disappear. What you do is you come to live with it and deal with it on a go forward basis. And there are lots of things that can help you do that. And that's really the work that I do 
and the subject of the book and all the teaching strategies and strategies for psychologists are designed to help people deal with the trauma they have. So you never go back, you only go forward. That's why for me, it's not like you bounce back, you bounce forward. So, you know, the best example of that is the military. So when I was in the government, I worked a lot with um, the military and veterans. And the idea originally of many of their programs was when someone returned from service and war, they tried to get them restored to where they were before they left and where their family was. And I kept saying, no, no, they're not ever going to go back there. Everybody's changed. And so the question is, how do you move forward? Not how do you restore where they were? Shall I go on to the D word? Sure. I was just going to say I, I was having trouble unmuting, but um, uh, <laughs> I love the restorative term and and bouncing forward that that concept that you just uh, said. Um, so yeah, I, I I just wanted to say that that you know I think the term restorative is is um, really helpful. Um, we're trying to put things back um, and maybe move through. So. Um, and great comment from Nick. Nick is one of our uh, consistent listeners who's a, a young uh, young person in the field uh, in school. So this is a great comment. I think one of the things probably, hopefully we'll get to discuss maybe are the impacts of trauma um, brought out perhaps by circumstances this year um, on you know communities of color and um, certainly students who are impoverished as well. So that might be, um, Something to, something to talk about too as we continue. I mean, just a quick um, observation on that really good comment. Um, there's an intersectionality between trauma, race, and trauma, race, and ethnicity, and the whole set of issues around racial discrimination and ethnic harassment, along with trauma, are not separate silos. They actually are intersecting in critical ways. And how we can help kids deal with that is really important. And one of the sort of observations about the police, um, and that's police external to the school and police within the school, is what is the focus or aim of people who serve as law enforcement? Is, is their goal to protect or is their goal something other than that? Because you have a very different orientation if you put on a trauma lens and a protective lens than if you put on some other lens. So if it's a matter of power and authority, then being a police officer looks very different then if your role is one of cooperation, collaboration, and um, community building. So the D words. So these are four categories of ways that one can help traumatized kids. Um, and trauma symptomology is actually triphasic. It's dysregulation and disassociation and overregulation. We often miss the overregulated kids because they're doing everything right, so to speak. 
we don't see that they're working extra hard and doing everything right and being over gratuitous as being a way of compensating for the trauma they're experiencing. Um, so one um, strategy is diversion. So I think we have to start with the idea that it isn't a waste of time to do some exercises to get the autonomic nervous system under control. And in the beginning, teachers often say, well, wait, I have so much content to cover and it's so difficult. And my answer to that is if you actually, if the students are on high alert and their autonomic nervous system is activated, however important the content is, they're not gonna get it. So to spend the five or 10 minutes on a diversionary quote exercise is actually helpful because you can center them and bring them back. So I talk about anything that uses your senses at the beginning of class is a way of doing that. Doing a collective tongue twister exercise is a way of doing that. There are a number of activities that you can engage in. I mean, if I told you right now to trace your, put your, on, lay your dominant hand down and take your non-dominant hand and trace your dominant hand so that you create a handprint. If you do that and then try to, color it in or write in it with your non-dominant hand, that exercise allows neural pathways to open up because you're doing something that you actually have to concentrate on, namely using your non-dominant hand. So unless you're ambidextrous, this, but there are exercises like that and similar exercises that are really helpful. So that's what I mean by diversion. Um, and, and I think missing there, um, I don't know where it went, is dialogue. So that's one of the Ds. So I don't want to lose that D. I think it got hidden in that slide. So dialogue is another method that's hugely important. And dialogue in this context requires that you reference students by name, not just good morning class or how's everyone doing, but Sarah, that was a really good comment you made yesterday. And um, Juan, I really liked the way you thought about that problem and other ways to engage with students in a more personalized way, whether that's by email or by text or by calling or by sending something. So personalization right now really matters and dialogue and engagement does too. Um, the draw, clay, dance thing um, has to do with using your senses and um, doing something that is um, overtly not thinking about whatever the trauma was that you're dealing with. So whether it's using clay or drawing something or writing words. Um, one of the sort of critical issues at the moment is that most people have negative thoughts as opposed to positive thoughts. And as all of you psychologists know, we do way better psychologically if we have positive thoughts, the sort of ratio is three to one other than in the workplace where if you're making criticism, it's five to six to one. So if you were to ask um, people to draw three things um, that they're feeling at the moment, 
Um, sadly, most people would draw three negative things, anxious, scared, sad, something like that. Um, and then you need to match those with positive things that they're feeling so they can see that. And actually feeling thermometers are a really good thing so that people see their emotions change and that the positives are there, um, which is why we created a, a feeling alphabet activity set so you can find positives, even though they may not be the first thing that pops into your head. Um, and then dazzle and delight is my way of saying, do really fun things, wear a costume, when you teach. I um, often, when I read some of my children's books, I wear giraffe ears because a lot of the books are about giraffes or I wear a giraffe suit or I wear a feather boa or a wig or I have some streak in my hair of some color. But the point is to do something because one of the things trauma takes away is joy and the capacity to play. And we know that kids need both. So do adults, by the way. But Kids need to engage and play. And if trauma takes that away, we have to restore that. And dazzling and delighting them is our ways to do that. So no punishment for kids who act out right now. The likelihood is that it's some form of dysregulation related to trauma, not for every kid, but for many kids. Um, don't ask them to leave the room. Find ways to process in place in the room. Um, if you can, um, shouting and demerits don't work right now. What really works is dialogue, diversion, drawing, and delighting people. Those are um, the best strategies. So if you go down one on the slides. Oops. So um, I, I just go. wanted people to see this as an example from a medical setting. I, I don't know if you can see the names. They're all names of women um, who have gone through extraordinary times or done extraordinary things. So this was in a medical setting where people were getting medical tests that were anxiety provoking, maybe traumatic and stressful depending on the particular person. So, they label the lockers instead of one, two, three, four, five, six, or A, B, C, D, E, and would tell you to go to locker A or locker 122 or whatever. They told you to go to Maya Angelou or to Betty Ford. And I have to say that it's an extraordinarily different feeling, an empowering feeling. So if you think of all the lockers we have in schools and the ways we use them now, and the ways we could, if we were wearing a trauma lens, we could use them or use cubbies or use walls and halls differently. Those messages make a difference and they impact how you feel. Um, and it allows you to process in a different way. So I use that as an example so that you can transport that idea um, into school. Karen, I wanted to ask you before, as you were talking about the three Ds, you mentioned that adults also need these things as well. And I'm wondering about adults who are recovering or still healing from past trauma right now and how they may be more vulnerable or susceptible to secondary trauma. And um, how, do, how do we support 
adults, ourselves, and, and other um, uh, caretakers, caregivers for kids um, while, while they support kids who are experiencing trauma. Okay, so I, I just want to mention there are four Ds because you got to add dialogue back. Don't mean to be critical, just want dialogue to be in there, um, which somehow fell off the slide somewhere. Um, so I, I, there is no question but that if you've experienced trauma in the past, it can get re-triggered. So that's one whole set of issues that you know, if you've been traumatized, you can pretend you like have a tuning fork in your head and then something happens, maybe related, maybe unrelated, that re restarts that trauma. Then for educators, they not only have their own trauma, but sadly, you can catch trauma kind of like a virus if you're around lots of traumatized people. And it can take a variety of forms. One form is secondary trauma to distinguish it from whatever trauma you're already feeling. So teachers may be feeling their own or school psychologists, their own trauma from whatever's happening at the moment. Then they catch secondary trauma from their students. And secondary trauma requires that you really do and exercise self-care very consciously and overtly. And ideally, if schools were open, they'd have a care room where teachers and psychologists could go, where they could process what's happening in the classroom and processing, process what they're feeling. Um, but certainly doing things for oneself as opposed to always doing things for others matters. And remembering that doing things for oneself isn't selfish it's self-healing. And then in a, uh, for some people, it isn't just secondary trauma, it's vicarious trauma, which tends to be more prevalent in people who've been traumatized before. And so people who've been traumatized before have sort of an existential crisis. They wonder, is my work valuable? Am I doing anything? Am I accomplishing anything? Um, can I um, achieve anything in my work? And for those people, that's a much harder kind of um, trauma to deal with. And you really need time to self-reflect. You probably need some distance between what you're doing and what you're feeling, which is really hard to do in the midst of everything. Um, sometimes it requires even therapeutic intervention, someone professional that you can talk to about what's happening. But we need to take care of our teachers, especially those teachers who are really putting themselves at risk in the work that they're doing now, both their physical well-being and that of their own families, as well as um, all the psychological issues that they're feeling. So whether it's primary trauma that they have and then secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, um, those are important. I should also mention that people often confuse what I've just described as either burnout or compassion fatigue. Those exist, but they're not trauma-based. 
So those may be happening, um, but they're not based on the traumas of our world, which include the pandemic and economic uncertainty and job loss and racial tension and racial harassment and um, any other number of catastrophes that are happening within families now in terms of addiction and dysfunction. So sorry, long answer. No, that was a great answer. So you, you are you saying that those um, would be more like a succession, succession of little E's versus a, a biggie that would constitute trauma? So for educators, the what happens to them in part depends on their own primary trauma level. So the more an educator has experienced trauma in the past, mm -hmm. the more susceptible they are to quote, catching trauma. And you literally catch it like a virus um, from other traumatized people. And I think we undervalue self-care and we need to encourage self-care and recognize the effort and need um, for taking care of oneself. Because if you can't take care of yourself, it's really hard to do your job well. And one of the symptoms of secondary trauma is fatigue and um, lack of concentration and lack of memory and lack of creativity, all of which you need to, to be able to teach well right now. So if we scroll down a little, um, we, we talked a little bit about feelings. And I, I just wanna say that it, it isn't always easy for students or educators um, to talk about their feelings or identify their feelings. Um, there are lots of strategies to help people do that. Um, one of them is kamochis, um, which I've spelled there. Um, which are sort of feeling toys. And um, when I was a college president for eight years, I used to keep a bucket of these um, in the entryway to my office with a carabiner. And I used to say to people, you know, take one and wear it on your backpack or in your pocket, put it in your pocket. And if your mood changes, come and switch it out for another one. And uh, well, they caught on. I mean, there were hundreds of them. People were wearing them all over the place. And the point was it legitimated having feelings, not all of which were positive, but also that feelings could change. So I just want to encourage people to use um, feeling activities or feeling toys, even with adults, as ways of accessing, naming it so you can tame it and then frame it. I love that. I feel like it normalizes yeah, emotions more and um, that that would get kids talking. And um, I, so I think that's awesome. It's also giving me comfort that a lot of the things that you're talking about, um, you know, one, I wouldn't say that I know a super large amount uh, about trauma to begin with. So I'm a little bit, um, you know, I'm learning a lot for sure, but it gives me some comfort to know that the things that I feel like I do know a lot about, you know, anxiety or depression, like some of these strategies that I would use with, with, 
kids um, in those situations are very applicable um, to to here as well. So it's not like totally relearning a new skill set. It's um, you know it's all so. Let me good, add good one um, while we're thinking of ones that work for other things. So um, one of the things that happens to kids um, both online and in person when they're struggling with trauma is that they may not always be willing to engage with the teacher or with their peers. So I've often suggested that online or in person that kids have, whether it's pieces of paper or blocks or uh, uh, some sort of manipulable that's red, yellow, and green. And then what they can do is put it on their desk or hold it up so that someone knows, oh, I'm green, I'm ready to engage. I'm yellow, I'm not so sure, maybe. Or red, like, oh no, please don't deal with me today. Now, one red for one day or two days is not something to get worried about. If a kid has it there for three days, I'd start to get worried and then do something to intervene to help that child um, do better. So those blocks and their a variety of them um, out there. I usually have one with me. I don't write the second, um, but you can just picture what they would look like. There are also um, emoji dice where kids can, that show different feelings that they can put on their desk or share online that signals to the teacher, hey, I'm not good today, or I'm fine, or I'm, angry or sad or whatever. So if we then go down one, okay. So I don't know if you wanna to get to this or ask more before I turn to this. It's funny, I was, I was just commenting in the uh, in our little chat box on the side here um, that I was like, oh, I, I can't wait for her to show the, the toolboxes. So it was like, you read my mind. So I, I would love to hear about those. Okay. So one of the things I realized is that this effort to activate the senses, all five senses, and add in intuition and balance to the usual five senses um, isn't always easy. And um, sometimes there's just not an easy strategy to do it and not everybody's comfortable. So I suggested creating, and I, I have mine here, um, trauma toolboxes. So what a, a trauma toolbox has in it um, are items that allow you to use your senses. So here's a feather, right? So it gets it feeling and touch. Um, by the way, you can use it to trace your hand um, the same way we did before in the exercise. Um, it, it has something that activates sound, hearing. And by the way, we're calling more now on auditory skills than before. So we've got to think about how to improve auditory skills. Um, I usually have something that has um, a taste, like a lifesaver, or um, which is a ironic um, and good pun, a lifesaver. Um, I've had scented markers that people can use um, along with a pad of paper so they have something to write with. 
Um, and then some Play-Doh, something to feel with, and then some construction toys to connect with. Um, also pipe cleaners work for that. So you can do that. And then always within them, I try to put in some sort of word or something. Um, so th this is a little thing. I don't know. Can you see it says hope? And I hope it's facing the right way. Um, so let me just talk about, so words are powerful. Words can inspire. I use the word hope and here's why. Um, I, I think many people think that there's nothing you can do about trauma and you just have to suffer through. And actually we should have high hope because there are amazing ways of dealing with trauma. It's one of those things that actually we know how to deal with if we can name what it is. We actually know how to tame it. That's really good news. Now, I use hope for that reason, but I also use hope because I tell the story about Pandora's box. And since the trauma tool box um, is, is what we're talking about, you know, Pandora's box makes sense. So in the myth of Pandora's box, you know, she opened the box and all these horrible things flew out. But what people don't remember is there is one thing that never flew out of Pandora's box, and that was hope. And hope stayed in that box. And I want people to remember that, that hope is there. Now, the box itself um, closes up. It's packed tight. Um, I'm just closing mine up so you can see it. And for many people, just having the box is important. And if every student had one, um, one can have teachers when things get out of control in a class or people aren't concentrating, can get people to use their toolbox. It helps people just knowing it's there because it acknowledges trauma. It's also a quote, non-elite toy in the sense that tools are, are you know, what you use to make things. They're not elite expensive items. They're um, things that are day to day. And there are other meanings of toolboxes on the web um, and other um, ways in which you can share what's in the toolbox, being very careful, of course, during the pandemic. Now, let me just add that um, one of the things that concerned me more recently um, after talking to lots of teachers and listening to kids, is that the change in traditions over the holiday is going to be really difficult. So things that kids and families used to do, um, some of which were ethnically based, um, whether that's partying or fiestas or get-togethers or sitting on Santa's lap or whether you celebrate, Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa. So I started to develop um, what I'm going to call holiday um, kits. They're the equivalent of a trauma toolbox. This is a Santa's. Um, and they have things that are more focused um, on the holiday. So they have the same crayons, except this time they're like, um, you know, in a candy cane box. And then there's a candy cane. And then there are Guatemalan or Mexican worry dolls. 
And if you talk to kids about the tradition of these little tiny dolls, um, the idea is you give them your worries and then you put them to bed when you go to bed and they take your worries away from you. Um, it has feeling toys like this, but they're all holiday. This is a Christmas tree in case you can't see it. Um, there are pipe cleaners um, in the uh, colors of the holidays. There's a scented pine cone. There are Latin American bracelets that you can wear and share. Um, there's an ornament that you can make. And there's actually an ornament that you can make using your own fingerprint, which gets to personalization. So the idea of these boxes is to do what the regular trauma toolbox does, but to specialize it for the holidays. Um, I love that. And we have a lot of good comments in the chat boxes. People are very, uh, very impressed with, with all that fun stuff. There was a comment earlier, too, that I wanted to go back and highlight. Can I give app. one away if you get the name of someone who would like the little mini trauma toolbox? Yes, one certainly. Of audience members, if they would like one, I can make one. My magical pointer. Okay. Yes, do the magic pointing. <laughs> I know you have a book to, for a giveaway as well. So hold on, everybody, for that one. Okay. I pointed you, Miss Marie Morales. So, Miss Marie Morales, I will message you in the chat, but please um, send us your email and we'll get it to Karen. Awesome. Um, so, there was another comment, and I'm going to scroll back, um, and it made me think about. Um, you know, we have a lot of kids in the virtual setting um, and that, so I've, I've been seeing teachers use kind of like uh, virtual calming tools, virtual like Bitmoji classrooms, Google classrooms that have resources and online coloring, like mandala type of uh, coloring and whatnot. Um, I, I know it's hard for all of us that are in the kind of virtual world. I'm thinking about how we're gonna incorporate some, but the question was how is helping students deal with trauma strategies and interventions impacted by distance learning where students are working from home? Do you have any thoughts on those kids that are at home and we can't, be there physically with them? So there are lots of ways that these strategies can be adopted for the online environment. So one could create toolboxes and give them or mail them to students um, so that they have them. One could also help them with their parents to create them. If it's older students, they can get a shoebox and do it too. Um, or you can send them the items that go in it. So you can do that. You can also do things with things you find at home. So let me, I, I don't know if you can see this, but th these are like rubber bands. So one of the hard things for right now is connections. Um, it's very hard to feel connected. So whether you link together paper clips or link together rubber bands, and if you have people create them and do them say six feet, so that you know what social distancing is, just the act of connecting, the actual act of putting these together and hooking them in starts an idea of connection. So there's lots that you can do in the online world um, of these trauma tools. 
and in fact, I'll give you one right now if you wanted to do one. So one of the, and by the way, I, I do most of my training now online and I do all these tools online. So um, they, they work online as well as in person. So if I were to tell you all to just stand up for a minute, I'll do it with you. Um, and stand on your um, non-dominant leg. So if you're left-handed, stand on your right leg. If you're right-handed, stand on your left leg. Okay, don't hold on to anything. If we had time, I would ask you to balance for 30 seconds like this. Um, but let's just do it for a minute. I mean, not a whole minute. I mean, just like, like a brief second here. Okay, now, what I want you to do is the same exercise, balance on your non-dominant leg, but I want you to do it with your eyes closed. Um, don't fall down, don't hit anything. Um, but as soon as you try it, you should see how difficult it is to balance with your eyes closed. Um, and so what I tell people about that exercise, and you can have kids do this at the start of class or during class if they're struggling, um, and, and they you know, have lots of trouble with their eyes closed, is what, what's really happening is that balance requires proprioception. It requires that you be able to see and focus on something. All of these tools work on interoception, focusing on what's inside you. So you're doing exercises that are showing balance on the outside as an effort to create balance on the inside. So I, I've actually written some pieces on how to do all of this online. Um, so if you just Google um, online learning, uh, trauma responsive online learning strategies, there are a whole set of them. Now they may not be for the age group you're teaching, but all of these can be adapted and adopted and transformed up in age or down, depending on the strategy. These are wonderful. And there's so many um, great comments already. People saying they wish they'd had these, you know, before, and they feel like these will be beneficial personally, as well as for mm -hmm. students. And uh, yes, me too. And I, I didn't want to um, neglect the resources on your website. Um, is it KarenGrossEducation.com, so, I believe? Yes. Um, yeah. It is. It's Karen www.karengrosseducation.com. And what's there are almost everything we've talked about. There's a how-to guide for creating trauma toolboxes. There's the feeling alphabet activity set. There are my trauma responsive children's books. There's a tongue twister book that's also a downloadable PDF. Um, as well as a hard copy if people want that, and my adult books, um, Breakaway Learners and Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door are also linked to there, as well as things I've written, um, which may be of interest and useful. Um, I wrote something recently about how to help students understand the election um, and the uncertainty of counting votes, which for many people is desperately disquieting. Um, so, uh, that's amazing. And we at school psych podcast for sure appreciate, uh, you know, available resources online and, and all that stuff. We love putting that stuff in our Google drive and directing people to that. Awesome. Thank you. 
So I, I can't really see that, but I think they're all there um, on the screen right now in terms of how to find me. Um, and um, my email is there too. So you're more than welcome to reach out if I can be of help to you. Very nice. I'd like to ask people for any like last minute questions, but I know that you have, uh, you're allowing us to uh, give away your book. So we're super excited. So um, maybe while we're waiting for last questions, Rebecca can, the yeah, book. can um, do the magic finger. Um, I, I should also note about this book. Um, you know, it it's very, a lot of my own personal stories are in this book, both as an educator, but also individual stories. Um, so I hope it's a book that not only is theoretically grounded, which it is, but also really in the trenches, on the ground, application of theory to practice, using my own examples and those of my students and those in my own life. So um, I, I hope that's um, helpful. Nick Shannon won the book. So congratulations, Nick. We're so excited for you. And Nick isn't even, it just floors me every time um, that he's not even yet, he's in, in school still, and he joins us with these podcasts. And so I need to figure out, I know I follow you on Twitter, but I need to figure out where you're at, because my district needs to recruit you as soon as you get licensed, because you are awesome, and we love it. <laughs> yes, uh, Nick is in California, not to give away your info, Nick, but um, we, we would gladly recruit you to the East Coast if, uh, if you're interested. Um, I wanted to make a, one comment that I thought was really thoughtful and insightful, um, or, or at least pick up on something Marie said um, about had she had these resources earlier, you know, they might have made a difference for her. And I really think sometimes the the great work and growth that we're doing as adults in the field, um, we have the opportunity to perhaps be the adults maybe that we needed as children, or and that some of our students need. And so I think it's really um, beautiful and insightful for us to um, address trauma, you know, and, and our own um, needs and um, uh, the support of adults, perhaps that we might have needed. So I, I really, I thought that was uh, just a wonderful comment that she made and wanted to really resonate that and, um, and just thank Karen for um, this good work and, and helping us with these insights and strategies and ideas. So one of the hardest things for me is that we actually don't train teachers and often school psychologists or school nurses on how to respond to trauma. And um, maybe one of the bright sides of all of this is that it'll become more common for both schools to become trauma responsive and the individuals within those schools to become more trauma responsive. Um, because there are two reasons this really matters. One is that this is generation T, generation trauma. I mean, if you just think about everything that's happened of, since 2001 and we named generations. So I've named this one, sadly, generation T. But I also worry about the epigenetic transmission of trauma, which is the transmission across generations. 
and not just as a matter of culture or habit, but there's new science showing there's literally, well, it's not DNA, but um, RNA transmission of trauma from one generation to the next. And it's been seen in Holocaust victims, and it's been seen in um, people who've gone to war, and it's been seen in um, minority communities and in Native American communities. So we should be really worried about addressing trauma so that we don't create another generation that's born traumatized. That's so true. I, I remember reading about that when that came out a, a while ago about epigenetics, reading an article on that, and it was looking at Holocaust survivors and how generations later that can be kind of traced, like your grandchild will have, um, you know, indicators for that. And it's, I mean, so it's so important. And like you said, we need to, I think, I feel like, you know, we need tier one kind of trauma responsive practices um, because because you never know kind of who's, especially with a pandemic, who's um, suffering from that. And then a lot of the great kind of uh, strategies and whatnot that you've shared with us tonight. So thank you so much for uh, all of that. I hope it's been helpful. Yes. For sure. Um, I want to remind everybody that we've got another episode. I, I just dumped a whole bunch of episodes on the Facebook um, events page. So we've got several that are up there. And our next one is with Dr. Flanagan. We're not sure what we're going to be talking about yet, but um, I'm sure it'll be a good one. So um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. All of you.